Welcome back, America to you, and I hope you're having a good Friday as California is on the verge of washing away, according to the forecast. Dr. Larry Arnn lived in California for a long time, the president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week for me, when I'm joined by Dr. Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College, to talk about matters both lasting and important, and sometimes transit and fleeting, but mostly lasting and important. Dr. Arner, do you remember in those days when you lived in California when a rainstorm would approach and the doom machine would begin? Uh, yeah, but we used to just, you know, I, what I remember is we always, we love to know about El Nino, right? And yes. So seven or eight years, every seven or eight years, it would be miserable. It would rain and we would feel very hard done by. And then La Nina would come later. And I never knew what those things were, except that I knew that there were some big movements in the weather. Now it's apocalypse, right? <laughs> it's, Oh, it's apocalypse. We're going to have the biggest storm ever, according to... I, I've got to hurry home before the biggest storm ever to hit California arrives. We are being told that, so it, it might be the biggest storm ever. Before we go to the abolition of man, and I've long promised our audience, and indeed we are beginning it today... I have to play for you a comment that President Trump made yesterday. People seem to enjoy our weekend, week in review uh, assessments of what has happened this week, Dr. Ryan. So I'm always going to have for you at least one thing that happened this week. This is something that President Trump said yesterday in his 77-minute press conference. Can we play cut number four? Look, I want to see an honest press. When I started off today by saying that it's so important to the public to get an honest press. The press, the public doesn't believe you people anymore. Now, maybe I had something to do with that. I don't know. But they don't believe you. <laughs> Dr. Arn, this has upset the press quite a lot because <laughs> yeah. the press pushed back and say they don't believe you and you make misstatements all the time. And he did make a misstatement yesterday about having the largest electoral college victory when, in fact, he hadn't by a long shot. But nevertheless, they are locked in a uh, and I say they because I've got them on the outside and on the inside of this. What do you think of that statement? Well, it's uh, first of all, our weekends when we talk about what happened this week, they're becoming like a really good sports show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know that Tom Brady brought those Patriots back. Yeah, he you know? sure did. That Trump, like that. Trump tore into that media this weekend. <laughs> it's the same thing. He, uh, he, Winston Churchill writes uh, in a really great essay called Cartoons and Cartoonists about how he was caricatured and beat up in the press and how when it didn't happen, he missed it. Huh. And how and how statesmen, is healthy for politics if statesmen were rated like sports figures. Well, Trump is Hulk Hogan, right? And he, he's, he's just a, he's just awesome. And uh, he, so yesterday I came back from Arizona where we had a big conference, a really great conference, and, uh, and uh, uh, the crawler was... On defense, colon, Trump criticizes media. So I got home and I watched some of it on YouTube and I couldn't catch the defense. I didn't see any defense at all. Uh, Oh, let me play you another one then. Since Okay, we're into this. We'll spend the first segment on this. Uh, The... um uh, this is this is this longer cut, cut number five on I don't mind bad press. Can you say definitively that nobody on your campaign had any contacts with the Russians during the campaign? And on the leaks, is it fake news or are these real leaks? 
Well, the leaks are real. You're the one that wrote about them and reported them. I mean, the leaks are real. You know what they said. You saw it. And the leaks are absolutely real. The, the news is fake because so much of the news is fake. So one thing that I felt it was very important to do, and I hope we can correct it, because there's nobody I have more respect for, well, maybe a little bit, but than reporters, than good reporters. All right, so, Dr. Arn, do you see what he just did there? I mean, yeah. it, was, it was beautiful from a political standpoint. He, he messaged three things. The news is fake. I love reporters. The leaks are bad. That's what he did there. It was a, it was a, a judo move of press. He, he, he just wants to get back to his loving relationship with the, <laughs> with the good reporters. But they have made themselves the story by finding these leaks of fake news. <laughs> That's our problem. That's our problem. And, you know, I, I, for one, believe that he is exactly right about that. I mean, as far as I understand so far, Michael Flynn, who I think is a really great guy, was appointed national security director. And in the waning weeks of Obama's administration, he imposed a bunch of sanctions on Russia. And so he, 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 the, the, Michael Flynn called some Russians to talk about that. He's about to be one of the people in charge of the whole deal. And so it's odd for Obama to impose dramatic sanctions in his waning weeks of power. The next administration is going to have to deal with it. So Flynn starts dealing with it. And and then, because there's this narrative, see, remember that word, because we always have a narrative now. It doesn't mean the truth, it just means stuff we're saying all in a row. But the, the narrative now is that Russia elected Trump because it was afraid of the mighty power of Hillary Clinton and because it's got the goods on Trump. And so now, Trump administration is having these phone calls paying off. That's what they're hinting at, right? Right. Because there's nothing improper. Nothing. In fact, it would be dereliction of duty if they weren't talking. Yeah, Charles Krautheimer called it a cover-up without a crime. That's yeah. it. That's it. And then, and then see, unless they had evidence that Flynn had said, okay, you helped us win Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to pay off. We're going to get rid of these sanctions. But, of course, there's no evidence that that was said. And so the whole thing is, is this storm. But what they want to do with Trump is they want him to live in an atmosphere of storm. And that's very effective. It's partly it's the combination of a press that leans heavily to the left and the 24-hour news cycle. It is also, um, and, and, I, and I tell my friends in the, in the press this, I'm going back to do Meet the Press this weekend, and I'll tell them in the green room, media self-regard is at a level unprecedented in my lifetime. Even when Walter Cronkite actually did make the news weather, he actually did drive the news cycle. When Walter Cronkite said Vietnam is lost, Vietnam was lost, and, and LBJ knew it. Back in that day, when their, their self-regard might have been justified, it was, not, it was a fraction of the self-regard with which the media holds itself today. Oh, and tr- Trump is, uh, you know, he, as I say, you may or may not like Trump, but do you like football? That's what this is like. <laughs> yeah, yes, it and, is. And, and so yeah. he, 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 he sees this. And what he does is he drags in a bunch of nobodies. 
you know, WKRP in Cincinnati, except that's a TV show, right? And he just he just goes and because you know the, there's a whole lot of people who work in the press who are not like these guys who are the White House press corps and have an edge on them. And it's not a very big room where the where they meet and talk to the president in the White House, of course, and that's a big privilege. And so he's dragging in others, and he's recognizing them. And then all the big wheels at CNN and NBC and CBS and the Associated Press, all these people who really matter in the world, see, they now write stories about how those nobodies didn't ask good questions. <laughs> you're right. You're right. A last thing before we go to break, and we're going to come back and talk about C.S. Lewis uh, on the other side of this and get into uh, the abolition of man, which is um, amazingly relevant at this point. Um, I am worried. I wrote a piece in the Washington Post today about the hysteria, the the signal versus noise content. Gorsuch is important. I mean, it's very important. But much of what's going on isn't mattering. And in fact, if we look back at administration's past, startup White Houses always have pratfalls. Five months into his presidency, uh, Bill Clinton was on the Time magazine cover, The Incredible Shrinking President. And that was with 91 months of his presidency and 24 years of his significance ahead of him. It's it's just not a position. We can't make judgments on Trump yet. It's too early. Yeah, I read your piece, and that's that's right. And and <clears throat> sobriety, uh, what, what Trump is doing is coping with the thing that all politicians fear, which is they will unite to make him look ridiculous all the time. But what he's doing is making them look ridiculous and, meanwhile, getting on with the work. And, you know, maybe it's going well and maybe it's going badly. We don't know yet, but you're dead right. One thing that's really good is Gorsuch, because that guy just seems to me like he's just a genius. It is a star. It is a rising North Star for this administration. If he would bring John Bolton over to the NSC, that would be a second really good thing. Mattis is a really good thing. Uh, Pompeo is a really good thing. Uh, Kelly is a really good thing. Uh, Tillerson looks to be a really good thing. I mean, there are lots of really good things. But boy, the media is so in love with its own voice that they're not listening to the really good things. I'll be back with Dr. Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogues are all collected at Q4Hillsdale.com. Everything Hillsdale is at Hillsdale.edu. We talk about the abolition of man next. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. All of our conversations dating back to 2013, there are now 209 of them, are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, I am going to turn to this 1943 book, uh, The Abolition of Man, which began with a 1939 grammar book by C.S. Lewis. But I forgot in my my first segment notes, Donald Trump did do one thing that bothered me greatly in his first months in the presidency, very, very much. And I wanted to talk about, since I was talking about the one great thing he did with Neil Gorsuch, he attacked Judge Robart, with whom he disagreed, as a so-called judge. Now, attack the decision, and by God, the Ninth Circuit's got a lot to attack in its record. It's the most reverse circuit going. But I am uneasy and criticized. I'm just curious what you do. When you call someone so-called, you attack the legitimacy of a co-equal branch of government, and that is actually fundamental. What did you think of that? Uh, yeah, in that, 
that guy was a Bush appointee, right? Was yeah, he's, he's kind of a non-political, uh, big-wheel lawyer in Seattle. Big firm, big long time. He's not political. And when you appoint district judges with two Democratic senators, that's who you get up with. You, you end up with good, good lawyers who are not particularly political. So um, I, I, I think I'm not as bothered by that as much as you are. Uh, I think, uh, but I, I'm slightly bothered. But look, look, first of all, conflict between the branches of the government is a sign of the health of separation of powers. That is true. And so, if if Bush says, or if if uh, Trump says that guy's an idiot, you know, that opinion is terrible. I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah, and so called. Well, he. If he made some move to unseat that judge, you know, or to use the executive branch, which has lots of guns, to not obey, you know, uh, the, the order, if he sent SWAT cops to Seattle to take over the immigration stations and start implementing the order no matter what the judge said, that's a breakdown in constitutional procedure. Correct. And, you know, in Washington, we have seen things that are just about as bad as that. Uh, you know, Obama's executive order about immigration, for Correct. example. Correct. But I don't think that's an instance of that. And, you know, tr- tr- Trump is going to have to play all the notes in the symphony. And he doesn't play the, the softer ones very much yet. But, <laughs> <laughs> and there are some which don't believe, you know, you don't bring the flutophone to the symphony. And, and, and the so-called, that language is just too close to undermining our basic arrangement. And, I, and so I, it is a caution. And I hope someone instructs them. When you attack a judicial opinion, you're fine. And when you attack a judge, you're not. That's the key thing to me. Yeah, well, I, you know, the, this is, of course, a repeat, re, repeat of the Mexican judge thing about the Trump right. University case, right? Everybody right. was outraged about that. I was, yes. And that was uh, racist, everybody said. But I, you know, I read it, and I said, you know, Trump, in the headline, of course, I get up in the morning, and the headline is, Trump makes a racist statement about a judge. But after, by the time I'd read the article, I, you know, Mexico, it turns out, is not a race. So, so it may have been a really terrible thing to say. It wasn't a racist thing to say. He was saying the guy's loyalties are to Mexico. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that was wrong. And I, I, I didn't think it was racist. I don't think he has a racist bone in his body. I think he's indifferent to the language of race that has become the custom of America. We have a way of talking about race, and he just doesn't care a lick for it. And that's different from being a racist. But I, the judiciary matters a lot. And he needs to, you know, he, he, he understood that with the nomination of Gorsuch. I would like him to nominate 18 more circuit judges and get on with it so that we could have 18 more things to praise him about. Yeah, you know, if you think back to the wars between John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson, yep, they were they, they weren't they you know they were very elegant people. They deputed others to say harsh things, and they said elegant things. But Lord, they fought like cats and dogs. And you know, we have the case of Marbury versus Madison, because the James Madison, the author of the Constitution, refused to deliver a bunch of writs of office. The John John Marshall and the eleventh hour didn't get done when the Adams administration was thrown out, 
and Marshall went over to be Secretary of, I mean, Chief Justice Supreme Court. That was a god-awful mess, kind of like this one. As was the Aaron Burr treason trial over which Marshall presided and Jefferson would not cooperate with. Uh, I mean, the conflicts are going to be there forever. But let's go on to Lewis, America. Stay with us. We'll be back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Thirty-three minutes after the hour, America. The last radio hour of the week means it's the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. All of them are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com, dating back to 2013. Today, we begin a conversation about C.S. Lewis's 1943 book, The Abolition of Man, uh, which is now 74 years young and continues to fascinate. It is not an easy read, Dr. Arn, and uh, you, uh, as opposed to... That hideous strength being one that just took the reader and grabbed them and dragged them along, that, hide- the, that the abolition of man requires some work. And did your students, when you taught it last semester, find that to be true? Uh, well, yes, it, it is. I, I am surprised over the years because I, I read this so long ago that I can't remember what it was like to f- first to read it. But uh, I am surprised when that people have difficulty with this. And I think we should try to simplify it. Uh, and some of the ki- some of the students did, you know. Some of them, you know, there's a bunch of really smart kids around here, so the, a lot of them, just great. Uh, think I people should be encouraged this way. First of all, there are three arguments in this book, and they can be stated simply. And the second is the book is short. That is to say. You can read it in two hours. Yep. And and, uh, and the third one is, it is an outline, and I even think this is why it, people find it difficult. It is an outline of two millennia of learning about what is the source of right in human beings and for them. It is about the natural law. And I, right. I, I think one of the reasons it may confuse is that it is not explicitly Christian. But in fact, the Tao, which I will leave to you to explain, is an all-encompassing concept. He wishes to avoid, in fact, being explicitly Christian in this book. Yeah, and that's, and see, that is so very valuable, right? Uh, because uh, you, you have to think uh, two things. One is, in Christianity, when the Bible and the tradition teaches of morality, they teach us that it's a point that Lewis makes. They teach us that we can know that, that that's, that, you know, the, the law that is written on the heart of every man, Paul writes in the book of Romans. Um, so, and then a, a second point is to understand that, that there could be such a being as God, that that would, that that being would have to be a perfection and that, everything in the universe would be ordered toward that thing. You have to understand some hierarchies that are around you presently that you can see. Because just because your mother tells you and your dad tells you, which they should tell you when you're little, that that this is how things are, at some point it's got to come to make sense to you. It's It's got to explain a universe that is visible to you. And you need this Tao, you need the moral law, you need the natural law in order to understand the hierarchy. And, and, uh, and it is the loss of that learning that Lewis fears, 
and thinks will lead to the abolition of man. Now, I want you, if you could, to state the three major premises before we go back and explain the origin of the book, because then I think, in fact, the origin of the book being dated in a time and a place in a specific grammar book has also got an off-putting effect on people because he's talking about commonplace 1943 knowledge in the middle of a war that is not commonplace in 2017. But what are the three major premises? Well, there's three chapters. The first chapter is called Men Without Chest. And what that means is is this. He says that uh, when you look out in nature, uh, you see things as they truly are, and you see that some of them are grander, impressive, juster, truer, more right than others. And he criticizes this book for undercutting the idea that this is so. So when you look at Yosemite Valley, the right thing to do is what the first uh, representatives of the United States government did when they saw it. They were soldiers, and they said, go tell President Lincoln. (laughs) 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 It was just like that. They're standing on a rim, and they look at that famous scene, right? They see Half Dome. And they and they just were awestruck, and they were silent, and then and then they sent a soldier to ride to give the news that this thing existed. Do you so know that I, uh, I I teach law about five hours drive south of Yosemite, and I tell my students at least a half dozen times every semester that their day would have been better spent driving to Yosemite and coming back than listening to my lecture, and they never go. I, yeah. I, I find it amazing that they never go. And see, Lewis, Lewis's point is then that 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 observation, which is a common sense and, and, and inevitable observation in people, that that leads you to view the world as being in correspondence with you and you with it and making demands on you. And so that is the, the birth of, of human understanding. And, and uh, so that's that is the first argument, and he, well, it, it has one more step in the argument. It, it actually isn't very complicated. The one more step is that he, he, chest, what does he mean with not having a chest? What's the chest? And what he says is, is that it's the sort of accumulation or totality or both of these perceptions of high things and low around you that make up something that the classics call spirit, which is uh, uh, a, uh, an example of it is righteous indignation, which, uh, which uh, is different from anger. You can just be angry, or you can be offended in the great wrongness of a thing, and, and angry in that way. And that's your spirit talking to you. It rises up against or for some things. And it's something different and larger and more uh, uh, consistent and abiding than just emotion. And you know what immediately occurred to me? It's a story you've told before, but we do. We're on in the morning now, and they've not heard you tell the story of Churchill and the first meeting with the war cabinet when they considered... Uh, emissaries from Mussolini to treat on peace. Tell that story. 
Well, yeah, so it went on over five days, and, uh, and uh, Churchill, it was a brand new government. Churchill became prime minister on the same day that Hitler began his attack uh, westwards to take Belgium and then France. And so the world is collapsing, and the British army is escaping, and everything is disaster. And, and so between May the 10th and May the 23rd, when these meetings start, in 1940, it becomes apparent the British are going to be thrown off the continent. France is going to collapse. Churchill has formed a new government, and key to the new government are Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, former prime minister, and current continuing foreign secretary, Edward Halifax. And they get a call, or Halifax does, from Mussolini, who's not in the war yet. Uh, he's, uh, he's what Churchill referred to as a neutral jackal. and uh uh he says he wants to host a peace conference and you know things are going real bad and they imply that they'll be generous about this and uh they might have been there are historians who think it was a mistake not to respond to this and the way things are situated um um uh, uh if Chamberlain and Halifax were to resign from the war cabinet, it's not unlikely that Churchill's government would have fallen. And the effect of that is it means he didn't have the power as newly minted prime minister to tell them no. He had to try to persuade them. And Halifax was for this thing. So this goes on for five days. And on the 28th of May, 1940, Churchill gets the whole cabinet together. Uh, and he gives a speech that is recorded in notes from two people who heard it. And the speech, he ends the, he, he does for about an hour, he reviews the war situation, he describes it as very grim, not hopeless. And then he says, at the end, he says, I've been thinking in these last few days whether it is part of my duty to open negotiations with that man. And I believe that if I were for a moment to consider parley or surrender, Every one of you would rise up and tear me down from my place. If this island story is to end at last, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood upon the ground. And he finished with that. And they leaped up, and they rushed to the front, and they cheered. And this is a cabinet meeting. You see, and that is men with chests. That's it. That, in other words, that, first of all, think, think of the images that are presented by that, because Lewis wants us to think in images. He starts with a waterfall, you know, things like that. And so the image of people standing against overwhelming power, making the last sacrifice as a testimony for the ages that freedom is right. You see, he, he built up that image, and, and it... It, it, the image cleared up the confusion, you see, it, 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 because, you know, what's the right thing? There'll be a lot of death. Uh, we're very worried here. And Halifax himself, you know, they go back and they reconvene the smaller war cabinet. And Halifax says, I think if we started negotiating now, we would be on a slippery slope which was exactly Churchill's point, although he didn't use those words. And so that's right. In other words, the wrongness of Hitler and the rightness of resisting him gave rise to something more than just a desire, a schooled, elevated, inculcated desire that's like spirit. And Churchill says, 
if you take that away, all your choices can have no direction. And it's important. I think it's not new either. Thucydides wrote 2,000 years earlier, whatever it was, 2,500 years earlier, the secret to happiness is freedom, and the secret to freedom is courage. That's not a new thing. That's right. And and this this argument that we said so far, it's not that complicated. You, you can put it in ordinary language. If you teach your kid that it's a really good idea to go out in the garden and find every pretty thing and rip it to bits just to show that he's powerful, then, then you will turn that kid into what uh, Lewis calls a trousered ape, except apes wouldn't even act that way. And so that kid, what will that kid do? He will start thinking that everything, de- you know, little boys who pull wings off flies, and they, you know, many of them do it, and you have to get them to stop. Or you'll end up in modern terms with Joffrey. For those of us who watch Game of Thrones, that's what happens when you fail to inculcate this. And this is a book about education. More when we return about the abolition of man. The 1943 C.S. Lewis classic uh, with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale or go to Hugh for Hillsdale.com to get every one of those. Coming back, one more segment this week before the rains come to California. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Beginning this week with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, a consideration we will conclude next week of The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis's 1943, very short book that began really because of the publication of a 1939 book. We've talked about one of the three premises. We'll talk about the next two next week. But can we set this up a little bit, Dr. Arn? I've taken it, you know, completely back backwards. Uh, in 1939, a grammar book was published, and they sent it to Dr. Lewis at, at Cambridge, I believe, at the time. And he reacted quite poorly to the book. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, uh, we know the name of the book. Uh, I, I won't, I, I've, I've forgotten it right now, but I have it written down inside my text of the book. But um, he, he, first of all, it's so like him. He makes up a pseudonym for the book and its authors, and the pseudonym is Gaius and Titius are the authors, which is a classical expression for just a couple of guys. It's just a couple of guys. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, he, he later brings up a third book by Orbelius, who was a famous mean Latin classics master who used to whip the students. And so to be an Orbelius was to be a cruel teacher. Uh, so he, he gets this book and he starts reading it. And what, another reason the book is simple, although its arguments are few and profound and can be repeated in a short space, and we'll repeat them all next time and see the one we just did, I guess, but um, is that he starts with one sentence in the book and he derives the problem of modernity. It's very sweeping. And it's in a short book. And so I think that the book is a tour de force. And also the book is valuable because it is, he says in the preface to That Hideous Strength, a totalitarian novel, and the third in a science fiction tr- trilogy, that, that That Hideous Strength is just putting to fiction the arguments that are in The Abolition of Man. And that's a really great thing, see, because now we've got... We've got a uh, novel, and we've got a key to it that is written as a treatise, and it's brief. 
And so it's a really great learning opportunity. Read them both together, and, and important arguments are illustrated in two different ways. And, 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 those, and, and in doing so, he is demonstrating, by the way, something that a lot of people might take note of. He is destroying his opponent in a civil, dispassionate way. Won't, won't even give their name. Not, not, not necessary. Not necessary. In an age of Twitter, he kind of foresaw this, uh, uh, what was going to happen, but uh, that, that when the guardrails are down and you give up um, meaning and you give up uh, the Dow, the guardrails come down and you end up with a lot of screaming and shouting, but not C.S. Lewis. That's, that may be why the book is maybe not as accessible to younger people than it was once. It, uh, it's, I, if that's true... That's because the work that is described in the book has been done to them. Yes, exactly. And in fact, I I was in two meetings this week. One was a faculty meeting. One was a committee meeting. And the word rubric was used in both of them. And I thought I even said in one faculty meeting, this is either the response of a general counsel to a GAO request for an audit, in which case it's very good, or it is a very long chapter from that hideous strength. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think anybody understood what I was talking about. But in fact, the work of that book has won, Dr. Arn. I don't know if it's yeah. won. It seems to be triumphing. Well, look at the, in the, uh, I, think it's, I think it's been superseded now, but uh, in the AP Guide to Secondary English Literature, published by the College Board that prevailed for 15 years and at least until into the 2000s, it says uh, this paragraph in the foreword, teaching high school teachers how to teach AP literature courses. So it's exactly opposite to this criticism by Lewis. He says, uh, it says, uh, objectivity and factuality are now out the door. We no longer privilege the text over the reader. That means here, Sarah and Johnny, is Shakespeare it's more important what you think of them than what Shakespeare had to say. That's, that's literally it. And then it closes this paragraph. Um, um, we teach them to find their own reality. And think of the meaning of the term reality, right? Like you can have your own. Your own reality in the text, no doubt hoping, a oh, dangling participle, that they will find values to guide them through a mad, mad world. So, in other words, now this this artful, elegant, uh, concise criticism by Lewis becomes, in a crude way, the self-proclamation of the teachers of English literature. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's what, it triumphs. But that it could be temporary. It could be a temporary triumph. That's why we do the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Arn, as always, we will continue with the abolition of man next week. Thank you, America. I will make it through the rain this weekend. I will be back next week. I'm going off to Washington, D.C. tonight to hold forth on Meet the Press on Sunday. I hope you'll join me on Meet the Press Sunday. I'll be back on Monday. And Dr. Arn will be back next Friday. For all things Hillsdale in the interim, hillsdale.edu, hillsdale.edu. For these dialogues, you for hillsdale.com. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you. Jake and Danielle. Thanks to all of you for listening. And Ben, this is the Hugh Hewitt Show.